It's very nice to uh, uh, introduce Peter S. Williams uh, this afternoon for the 4.30 session. Peter uh, gave a paper last year also, the second time he's given a paper for the Gospel Religion section at Tyndale, and uh, we look forward to it. And uh, uh, after undergraduate and graduate work in philosophy, Peter uh, got a job, first of all, with the uh, Christian group Damaris, and uh, more recently, uh, while continuing to work for Damaris, he has gone to be Assistant Professor of Philosophy in University College in Norway, and so he splits his time between those two jobs. He has written widely on apologetic and philosophical issues with books such as The Case for Angels, I Wish I Could Believe in Meaning, and more recently, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, amongst his uh, more important publications. So it gives me great pleasure, as I say, to introduce uh, Peter and uh, ask him to present his paper to us, the title of which is The Meta-Ethical Argument for Theism from the Mouths of Atheists. Thank you very much. Um, Well, as several people have uh, said before about the fact that we're having uh, joint meetings, um, it's probably unavoidable that I may have uh, pitched what I'm doing so that it will annoy everybody. Um, I have uh, very little idea um, whether I've pitched it too low, some too high for others, uh, and so on, what background knowledge to assume or not to assume. Um, So let me get my apologies up front out of the way first, and I'm sure we can uh, pick up things uh, in the uh, question time. Uh, I'm going to uh, wander around slightly because I find it hard to to stand still, Um, but it's all going to go on up here on the PowerPoint. Uh, The meta-ethical argument, uh, or the the moral argument, uh, as it's more commonly called, uh, the kind of argument for God's existence that C.S. Lewis gave uh, in the beginning of mere Christianity, for example, um, subtitled From the Mouths of Atheists. And I'm kind of doing two uh, tasks at once uh, in this presentation. Uh, One is to uh, give a presentation of the the moral argument, or a version of the moral argument. But the other is to advocate a rhetorical strategy, uh, a practical apologetical uh, strategy, uh, which is that I'm going to defend um, this particular argument for theism only by quoting from atheists. Um, and as we'll perhaps see, that has uh, some plus points, I think, but also um, some minus points as well. So uh, this uh, standard uh, kind of taxonomy, the difference between uh, applied ethics, those questions where we want, you know, well, give me an actual answer to what should I do in this situation. Um, upper level from that, uh, kind of normative ethics, discussions of norms or rules or, or some sort of systemization of ways in which we can wisely go about making those moral decisions. But up even a, a level from normative ethics would be then the, the philosophical discussion of meta-ethics, uh, the discussion of questions like, well, what is goodness? What kind of thing is a moral obligation or responsibility and so on? What kind of existence should we attribute to it? How do we explain it? What worldview uh, is most comfortable uh, as a fit with the reality of such things and so on? 
Um, I mentioned about weak points and strong points. Uh, a weak point, certainly, uh, of the, uh, the moral argument for God is that it argues for God with a small g, as it were. Um, I think it argues for a wholly good, you might be able to argue necessarily existent, transcendent, personal being by the end of this argument, but that's not everything that a theist, certainly not a Christian theist, means by God. Um, This is a common uh, criticism, though, uh, leveled at uh, natural theological arguments in general, um, and applies to most of the arguments in that field, except the one that I was defending last year, the ontological argument, if you think that that goes through. Um, So this would be part of uh, a cumulative case that I would defend. So, uh, for instance, recently um, I had a debate with the atheist philosopher Peter Cave at Imperial College in London, and I defended uh, three arguments uh, for theism on that occasion, one of which was this moral argument, and I actually defended it in this manner by only quoting from atheists. So I've kind of road-tested um, this uh, apologetic strategy uh, as well, uh, and you can uh, listen to that debate uh, online. It's podcasted from my Damaris podcast channel. Uh, Strong points, though, of this argument, uh, I think, um, and I'm kind of conflating strong points in terms of of actual philosophical soundness with strong points in terms of uh, apologetic strategy, rhetorical strength. Uh, First of all, it's quite a short argument. It can be presented, at least, as a single syllogism, the basic outline of the argument. And then there are kind of uh, sub-arguments that would go on about defending particular premises, but you can kind of sum it up as a short uh, argument, a single syllogism argument, uh, which is the kind of length of argument that I find non-specialist audiences in debates or whatever uh, can uh, fairly easily be given uh, to grasp. Secondly, it can be presented as a deductive argument uh, rather than as merely an inference to the best explanation, although it could be cashed out as an inference to the best explanation. Thirdly, it's something that's grounded in universal, uh, uh, daily human moral experience. Unlike trying to present something like the argument from the fine-tuning of the cosmos or the, uh, the origin of the Big Bang or some of these uh, theistic arguments that take um, empirical premises uh, from the natural sciences as their starting point and their launch-off point, um, you have to explain a lot about the science and the data and the evidence before you can get into the arguments uh, with people on those issues. Whereas when we're talking about the moral argument, it's morality and how we deal with morality, how we feel about morality is part of, of adults' day-to-day lived experience. Um, so that gives it a very uh, universal uh, appeal uh, in people's known experience, I think. And fourthly, uh, and something that I'm highlighting in the way that I'm presenting this, both premises of the moral argument that I'm defending are defended by atheists. Um, But, of course, it tends, therefore, to be the case that some atheists defend the first premise, but not the second premise, and some atheists defend the second premise, but not the first premise. Uh, because, generally speaking, defending two premises of a logically valid argument for theism is not something that atheists like to do. 
So in terms of rhetorical strategy here, quoting from atheists when uh, defending an argument against atheism does at least avoid uh, the objection, yes, it's an ad hominem objection, but it's an objection that uh, at least I think popularly many people kind of feel or would put the objection, oh, well, that person you're quoting to back up what you're arguing, he would think that, wouldn't he? He's a Christian. He already agrees with you. Um, And that carries, in my experience, quite a lot of popular weight that we can't trust uh, Christian sources on Christian matters because they're just biased. Now, in and of itself, I would completely agree that that's not a good objection at all. But by um, not even quoting from Christians and defending something, you completely sidestep that barrier to people's acceptance of what you're saying, at least. Of course, it does then, like the ruckle under the carpet, kind of raise... Uh, another uh, issue, it does open one up, perhaps, to the charge of quote mining, as it's sometimes put. Oh, you must be quoting that atheist out of context because I find it so hard to believe that someone who disagrees with your fundamental viewpoint would accept something so crucial in an argument against that viewpoint. Um, which is why, for example, I try and make it clear why there is a dispute between two camps of atheists that I'm talking about here when I talk about the separate premises, uh, why I would use multiple quotations from people, why I would tend to highlight where I'm getting the quotations from and say, you can go and track this down online yourself, go and read the interview, get the book, and so on. I would use a diverse range of quotations from several different atheists and perhaps even atheists from different atheistic uh, sub-traditions as well. That reinforces the point. And, of course, try and make sure that when I'm presenting a quote on something, that I do indeed take it in context and that I'm not quoting um, people out of context. Um, So, a standard uh, kind of very simple sketch of the moral argument would tend to go like this, and I think it's it's most easily understandable in this form. The first premise, if objective moral values, and of course you need to cash out what you mean by objective and so on, if objective moral values exist, then God, small g, exists. Premise two, objective moral values exist, from which, of course, it follows that therefore God, small g, exists. If the two premises are true, it seems to be a logically valid argument at least. But in this uh, rhetorical strategy, I tend to defend the argument in a slightly different nuance, as it it were. So the first premise here, you'll notice, shifts. And it now becomes, if God does not exist then objective moral values do not exist. But objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. And and I put it that way because it's uh, at least easier to find quotations from atheists defending this thesis, premise one, uh, uh, here, rather than the, the way that I originally put it. And then I would um, be careful to draw attention to an audience to the logical validity of the argument by saying, you know, ignore whatever you think about these truth claims. Just think through, does this, does this follow that if 
it's the case that if God doesn't exist, then there aren't any objective moral values. But it is, it were also the case that there were objective moral values, then would it follow from those two being true that God of some kind would exist? Just to focus on the, the validity, because, I mean, for example, in the debate I had with uh, Peter Cave, his uh, opening gambit in the debate, I went first because I was defending the proposition, belief in God is rational. Uh, and then he came on and said that, um, characterized my arguments as being um, arguments from gaps, gap type arguments, or arguments from ignorance. The type of argument when you say, here's some phenomenon X, we don't know how to explain X in a way that's compatible with a naturalistic worldview, therefore it must have a supernatural explanation. And you jump from one premise to a conclusion, and there's no uh, requisite uh, second premise in there bridging that gap. Um, and I was then able to come on and say, no, look, none of my arguments are gaps arguments. They're all logically valid. They have two premises leading to a conclusion and so on. And then in the, in the next speech, Peter Cave admitted that all of my arguments were logically valid. Um, but that the crucial thing was whether or not my premises were true. And I was then uh, very grateful to uh, highlight that to the audience in my next speech and say, great, I'm glad we're agreed on the validity, at least, of the arguments. We can put that, um, oh, it's all just gap argument kind of stuff behind us. So, again, trying to, in terms of apologetical kind of strategy, trying to preempt some of the... Um, common objections that would uh, float to the surface with an audience with this kind of argument um, yes those common objections are, are bad objections and you could, you could spend time pointing out how bad those objections are uh, but how better to actually just sidestep those problems as much as possible by kind of thinking through beforehand what they're going to be so that you can spend more time focusing on the main issue uh, and it gives you something to come back to when the, the other side, as it were, tries to use those gambits on you because you've already pre-flagged up in the way that you've prepared um, for those uh, objections being met. Um, so I might start off with a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, famous for his God is dead saying, of course. He said, uh, when one gives up the Christian faith... And of course he was very again the Christian faith, calling himself the Antichrist and so on. One pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. And in this context I would simply uh, minimally parse Christian morality as objective values here. Christianity is a system, says Nietzsche, a whole view of things thought out together. Uh, he gives it more credit than some of the contemporary new atheists do here. Um, by breaking one main concept out of it, out of the system that is, Nietzsche says the faith in God, if you break that out, one breaks the whole. It stands or falls, I, I presume this, it refers back to Christian morality, stands or falls with faith in God. Or to quote a modern day kind of Nietzsche in a sense, William Provine is... Um, You'll see from this quote, uh, very uh, kind of full on with his naturalistic worldview here. Uh, American philosopher William Provine said, There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. 
There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I am going to be dead. That's the end for me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. There's obviously a lot of things that you could pick up out of this quote. But if I just highlight the linkage that he's making here, just like Nietzsche, from there are no gods of any kind, there is no ultimate foundation for ethics, therefore. Another uh, kind of preemptive clarification that I like to make is that this moral argument is not an issue of normative ethics but an issue of meta-ethics. That this is an issue of moral ontology, what kind of thing is morality, not an issue of moral epistemology, how do we know what is right or wrong. As the American Christian philosopher Paul Copan says, belief in God isn't a requirement for being moral. The existence of a personal God is crucial for a coherent understanding of objective morality. And that's what the argument's claiming. And you might think that that's just blatantly obvious from the fact that I've shown you what the argument is already, but you would be surprised at the number of particularly new atheist writers who consistently caricature the moral argument as the claim that without a belief in God, you can't know right from wrong. Or without a faith in God, you can't be a good person. Or without believing that the Bible is the word of God, you're, you must be you know, in a moral relativistic morass and live a terrible life. And none of those claims are being defended in the moral argument here. I mean, as St. Paul puts it in Romans, uh, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Romans 2, 14-15. So there, explicitly, the Bible itself tells us that you don't need the Bible or a revelation, the law, in order to know right from wrong, or even, at least on occasion, to do the right thing. Because people have an intuitive, written-on-the-heart, uh, conscience access to moral knowledge. Uh, and that is a separate uh, issue. I would certainly grant that there are forms of the moral argument that could be mounted from the question, well, how come we know right from wrong, we have this ability to know right from wrong, given that there's a real right from wrong to be known. But that would be a separate class of argument, and, and again, that argument still wouldn't be saying you need to believe in God in order to know right from wrong, or whatever. It would simply be saying, actually, theoretically, you need to posit God in order to explain how it is that we all, whether or not we believe in God, do know right from wrong. See the crucial difference there. But none of that's what I'm arguing here. I'm focusing on the ontological question. So let's take it one premise at a time. First premise, if God does not exist, objective moral values don't exist. Atheist Richard Dawkins. 
He says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And again, just like Provine, just like Nietzsche, there's this linkage. No design, no purpose, i.e. no creator, no God behind reality equals no such thing as evil or good. It is pretty hard to defend absolutist morals on grounds other than religious ones, says Dawkins, being a bit more explicit rather than implicit about the claim. And uh, in an interview with my boss at uh, Demaris Trust for Third Way magazine some years ago, um, you can look it up on the internet, Google Richard Dawkins, Nick Pollard, fascinating conversation they had. Um, they got onto talking about morality, and Dawkins was very keen, as he always is, to say that, look, um, my belief in Darwinism as a biological theory, of course, doesn't imply, doesn't justify a commitment to social Darwinism. doesn't mean that I'm committed to the law of the jungle as an ethic. Actually, I'm very against that. And he says, uh, Dawkins says, there is no logical connection between what is, facts, as he says elsewhere, and what ought Values. Now, this is a classic uh, Bat Noir um, fact-value distinction, which, of course, prejudges the issue of whether or not values might be facts, as the moral objectivist claims. But anyway, Dawkins goes on, if somebody used my views, his meta-ethic, to justify a completely self-centered lifestyle at the level of applied ethics which involved uh, trampling all over the other people in any way they chose, I would be fairly hard put to it to argue on purely intellectual grounds with that kind of person, he says. Indeed, he says, I couldn't ultimately argue intellectually against somebody who did something I found obnoxious. He's admitting that his his meta-ethical views uh, evacuate his capacity for uh, moral argument I think I could finally only say, well, in this society, you can't get away with it, and call the police. In other words, fascinatingly, he sets out, very concerned, to show that you know, his, social, his Darwinism doesn't imply social Darwinism, and you don't have to believe that might is right, the law of the jungle rules, just because you have uh, a Darwinistic worldview, and by that I, I'm bracketing in a naturalism as, uh, as well, crucially, there. But he ends up, by the end of the quote, having to endorse and resort to the law of the jungle. I'm stronger than you are, you can't get away with it. (laughs) The irony doesn't seem to to strike him. Certainly, we should agree with him, absolutely, Mr. Dawkins. uh, Naturalism doesn't justify a self-centred social Darwinistic lifestyle. But what he seems to miss is that that is because... It doesn't justify any lifestyle at all. It doesn't justify decrying a socially Darwinistic lifestyle either. Once you've made this fact-value distinction. And in a conversation with uh, journalist Justin Briley from Premier Christian Radio when um, Dawkins had a debate in Oxford uh, with John Lennox, Briley managed to catch him for a bit of a, a chat afterwards. And Justin Briley asked Dawkins, 
when you make a value judgment, don't you, don't you immediately step yourself outside this, this evolutionary process and say uh, that the reason this is good is that it's good. Uh, and you don't have any way to stand on that statement. Dawkins says, well, my value judgment itself could come from my evolutionary past. <laughs> well, uh, Justin replies, so, so therefore it's just as, as random, in a sense, as, as any product of evolution. Dawkins, oh, you could say that. Uh, it doesn't in any case. Nothing about it makes it more probable that there is anything supernatural. I, Dawkins, I see where this question is heading, and I want to head off the moral argument here. Justin Briley, well, ultimately your belief that mm, rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six. Dawkins, you could say that, yeah. Uh, moving on from uh, the fascinating Dr. Dawkins, um, just a, a series uh, to get this breadth of, of quotes. Uh, I wouldn't use all of these uh, necessarily in presentation, but I'd like to, to share with you some of the fascinating quotes and the breadth of people that you can take this kind of stuff from. Paul Kurtz says, the central question about moral and ethical principles concerns their ontological foundation. At least he's not avoiding, he knows what the issue is. If values are not anchored in some transcendent ground, something that goes beyond the individual, personal, society, or agreement of nations, in some transcendent ground, then they're purely ephemeral. I could decide differently, we could decide differently. And that would change it, because the facts are constituted by our decision. Well, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, and gives a slightly different reason um, here. He says existentialists find it extremely disturbing that God no longer exists. Very different perspective on this from someone like Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens and so on. They would be extremely disturbed by the thought that God did exist. Um, Sartre says, no, no, it's extremely disturbing that God doesn't exist. For along with his disappearance goes the possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There would no longer be an a priori good, since there would be no infinite and perfect consciousness to conceive of it. So what sort of home do you give these transcendent values if not in the mind of God, I guess is his thought there. Contemporary British atheist Julian Bedini, uh, in his book uh, Atheism, a very short introduction, says, if there is no single moral authority, by which in context he means no God, we have to, in some sense, create values for ourselves. And that means that moral claims are not true or false. You may disagree with me, but you cannot say that I have made a factual error. In other words, he's kind of saying moral disagreements become like, I prefer strawberry ice cream to chocolate ice cream. Well, I prefer chocolate ice cream to strawberry ice cream. There's a difference between us, certainly. But we're not really disagreeing. I'm not saying, no, you don't prefer chocolate ice cream. It would be ludicrous for me to make that you're the only one who can tell me what you prefer. And hence, uh, Oxford atheist J.L. Mackey, or Mackay, I never know how to pronounce it, um, if there are objective values, he admits in his book The Miracle of Theism, they make the existence of a god more probable than it would have been without them. He's putting this in an inferential form. Thus we have a defensible argument from morality, from objective morality, to the existence of God. He explicitly admits. Of course, 
he's an atheist. So what does he do with this? Well, this is what he does. He goes on and he says, if we adopted instead a subjectivist account of morality, this problem would not arise. Well, true. Um, But this is where the rubber hits the road, I think. This is the crucial question. Which is really the bigger problem? Having to believe that God exists, or having to believe that moral subjectivism is true? Richard Dawkins again, just to illustrate the kind of track that uh, Mackey's thinking takes some people, at least. He says, there is a non-overlapping and exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters in the broad sense, and ideas about what we ought to do, normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning. This is always classic logical positivism um, from Dawkins at at this point. This is uh, the extreme uh, bracket of the rejection. Not only is there no uh, truth in any moral claims, they're just literally meaningless for Dawkins. So, reading Dawkins in The God Delusion, you have to keep thinking to yourself, this means nothing to me, this means nothing to me. Hitler and Stalin were by any standard spectacularly evil men. This means nothing to me. Um, And certainly, when he then, you know, crucially, at the heart of his objection to Christian belief is this idea that faith, by definition, means not living up to your intellectual obligations, and that therefore all kinds of faith, not only fundamentalist faith, but even the most kind of liberal, wishy-washy, bring-and-buy-sale, more tea vicar kind of religion, uh, as it were, um, is creating a space in society for legitimizing the evil of faith. You have to keep reminding yourself, of course, that means nothing to him. Even though it seems to be very important to him, um, but you know, some people like nonsense poetry. Um, so, moving on to the, the second premise that objective moral values uh, do exist. Um, I love this book by Colin McGinn, Ethics, Evil, and Fiction, uh, in which he um, takes an ascetic virtue theory of character. Uh, an objective aesthetic virtue theory of character and illustrates it from various pieces of of literature and is led at some points because he's done this to talk almost in a way that is reminiscent to me of St. Paul talking about putting on the character of Christ and longing for the coming kingdom of God Um, but of course he doesn't go there with it Um, but he talks in the introduction about wanting to defend a strongly objectivist or cognitive view of moral truth that he bases his whole uh, enterprise upon so you certainly can find atheists who will uh, very robustly defend the objectivity of moral value and even of beauty built upon that but that's a whole other topic um, atheist Kai Nielsen argues in this way he says moral truisms are as available to me or to any atheist as they are to the believer kind of fighting off the you have to believe in God in order to know kind of thesis Um, you can be confident of the truth of these moral utterances they are more justified than any sceptical philosophical theory that would lead you to question them 
in other words, we've got such a strong, uh, basic, properly basic, in Plantingan terms, intuition of these moral values that the burden of proof, at the very least, is on the person who's sceptical about them, and it seems to be a pretty strong burden of proof in Kyrenewson's eyes. Or, Peter Cave mentioned already, um, says, whatever sceptical arguments may be brought against our belief that, say, killing the innocent is morally wrong, moral truism, we are more certain that the, that the killing is morally wrong than that the argument is sound. Torturing an innocent child for the sheer fun of it is morally wrong, full stop. So, Peter Cave, in our debate, was very happy to grant me one premise of my moral argument, at least. Uh, Russ Schaefer-Landau has written a couple of uh, excellent, very interesting books defending objectivity of value, but then in the second half saying, of course, that doesn't lead to belief in God, and I happen to think he does a wonderful job in the first half and a terrible job in the second half. Uh, that's my perspective. Uh, but anyway, he says, some moral views are better than others, despite the sincerity of the individuals, cultures, and societies that endorse them. Some moral views are true, Others are false, and my thinking them doesn't make them so. Individuals and whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. And the best explanation of this is that there are moral standards not of our making. So, we've seen a range of atheists from slightly different atheistic traditions in one way or another... Uh, affirming and defending and arguing for both of the premises of this moral argument. So, of course, the ones who defend the objectivity of moral value tend, like Russia for Landau, to then try and argue, but, of course, that doesn't imply that there's a God. And the ones like Mackey, who think, no, if there were objective moral values, that really would imply that there was a God, tend to argue that there aren't any objective moral values. Uh, and that makes, at one level at least, their atheism uh, internally consistent, perhaps. But if both of those groups are half right in this way, then both of those groups are, at a fundamental level, all wrong on this issue. Um, and actually, I would simply probably just leave that puzzle, as it were, with an audience for them to think through. To think through, you know, could they both be half right? What would that imply? And, and, and if actually one camp is right, which camp am I going to, you know, am I prepared to give up objective moral values in order to reject God? Or am I prepared to override any of the, the reasons for thinking that the values imply God were they to exist? You know, who am I going to kind of side with? Am I prepared to pay that price tag uh, intellectually and personally speaking? So that's what I think all um, arguments are really doing is, is saying, uh, um, trying to convince people that there's a linkage between some, some concepts that they're going to buy into such that it leads them to another concept that they may not have initially bought into in such a way that they see that if I want to not buy into the concept you're trying to prove at the end, at the conclusion as it were, um, I'm either going to have to say that the, the linkage is all wrong, it's not logically valid, 
or I'm going to have to pay the price tag of rejecting one of these concepts that maybe initially I was prepared to, to buy into, which is why, for example, what I have in planting, it says that you can reduce somebody's knowledge by giving them a sound philosophical argument for the existence of God, because if they dig their heels in, they might be prepared to pay a price tag, even a pretty steep one. Um, but I try and put the knife in just a little bit further. And this was actually very useful in the debate, this move. Uh, worked nicely at a rhetorical level as well as an argumentative level, I think, and that's to go back to Nietzsche again, who um, says, why should you pay attention to truth? Why should you pay attention to truth? Uh, when we're arguing... I think there's a very close relationship between the, uh, the logic, the epistemology, and the, the ethics. I think they're, they're inextricably bound, and Nietzsche seems to be point of pointing in the same direction here. Um, a moral subjectivist would, at least in a sense, contradict themselves were they to claim that people objectively ought to believe the conclusion of any argument from moral subjectivism, or perhaps if you think that's not possible because if you see that the argument works, you can't avoid it, you certainly can have conscious control over whether or not you're going to bother paying attention to an argument that someone gives, gives you um, or not. Um, so therefore, I think I would argue that there cannot be a sufficient counter-evidence, counter-argument, to the belief that there are objective moral values based on that sort of properly basic intuition, because any argument for abandoning that intuition is at some level actually going to depend upon that intuition to lever me into even paying attention to the argument, taking it seriously, thinking it through, um, rather than saying, oh, well, you know, none of that stuff matters, I don't care, I'm just going to believe what I want. You can't say that that's wrong of me, can you? You know. So actually during the Q&A time in the debate at Imperial College, a gentleman in the audience stood up and said, you know, I don't believe that there are any objective moral values. I think it's all relative and subjective. But I have a question about what is it about God that grounds these moral values? You know, is it that he's more powerful than me or, or whatever? Um, now I was very tempted, and actually I told him, this is where I kind of dealt with this dilemma, I told the gentleman that I was very tempted to simply reply to him by saying that, of course, on his view, that there were no objective moral values, everything's relative and subjective, he thought that I was under no objective obligation to take his question seriously or to bother giving him a reply. And look how that would undermine the very process of debate that we are actually now engaged in. But, of course, I do believe in objective moral values, so I am going to give you a reply to your question. And I went on to reply to his actual question. But it, it very nicely gave me an opportunity to, to re-pick up uh, that point from the, the end of my first presentation uh, and to kind of bring it um, existentially home in the context of, of what we were doing. Uh, so there is uh, our uh, syllogism and uh, some of the ways in which I would defend it just by quoting atheists and some of the rhetorical strategy that's going into why I do it that way. Um, but as I'm sure we will highlight, it does also have some drawbacks in as much as um, there are some you know, excellent arguments and so on by, by Christian thinkers on this topic that I might think actually have more argumentative force than the quotes that I've had to use. 
But I think it, it, it comes across very interestingly to an audience, engages the audience very well when you do it this way, uh, and sidesteps some of the very common sort of man on the clap and omnibus kind of responses uh, in the, the turn for the debate. So, thank you very much. <laughs>